So yes, we need to reinvent the way we are welcoming people and the and the seats and the the, the experience has to be great compared compared to your home. But the idea that um, premiumization is a solution, we just really don't like the mm. idea uh, for historical reason. Cinema and uh, movie going is the cheapest, and as for us, as to say to stay the cheapest way of getting out and going out, uh, and it has to be a popular experience. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and I am here with Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief box office analyst at Box Office Pro. And this week, uh, we're talking to a couple of great guests, uh, Nathaniel Karmitz and Alicia Karmitz, the co-CEOs of MK2, uh, which is a French production, distribution, and exhibition company. We're also going to talk about uh, forecast for Black Widow, which opens this coming weekend. Uh, will actually be opening as you listen to this. Uh, and we'll have a few other things to talk about uh, from box office news and uh, general cinema news overall. But first, uh, Rebecca, please uh, tell us about our sponsor this week. Uh, this episode of the Box Office Podcast is brought to you by Box Office Live Sessions, the industry webinar series hosted by Box Office Pro. Join us on Tuesday, July 13th at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, for our next live webinar where we'll be discussing the role of premium format auditoriums in the global cinema recovery. Presented by D-Box and ICE Theaters, our panel will feature a presentation by research firm Omdia and a roundtable with executives from AMC Theaters and Cinemark Latin America. Register on boxofficepro.com by clicking on the Live Sessions tab on the top left corner of the page, uh, or check out the registration link in the episode description below. Uh, Daniel, I know you've been putting a lot of work into getting this live session together, and it looks like it's going to be a, a really good, informative panel on something that's really important, especially now. Yeah, it's going to be, a, I think, a, an interesting conversation around these premium formats. And by that, we mean everything from, say, IMAX screens to immersive seats. Uh, I think e even, even some VIP auditoriums, we can start looking at that as a VIP format, right? And uh, related on that uh, topic, some interesting insights from our guests this week that, that Russ mentioned, both uh, Nathaniel and Alicia Karmitz uh, from MK2, with some interesting details on their perspective uh, on premiums uh, at the movies. And you'll be able to listen to that interview with the Karmitz brothers later on in this episode. I mean, it's, it's definitely all the more relevant as we start to see more uh, big budget tent poles come out more frequently, more consistently. Uh, to that end, I mean, as you're listening to this episode, Russ, as you noted, we're, we're seeing Black Widow, which I would predict, I would imagine, is a, a movie that would kind of heavily index with some of these premium formats. Um, Sean, what are your predictions on that and on Black Widow in general? And if you think the premium experience will, uh, will play a key role in its domestic box office? I absolutely do. I think I think we've seen, especially throughout these last few months, as bigger movies have come out, uh, those are really the auditoriums that are filling up first. And I think that always really was the case, but especially now, uh, as as people are ready to get out of the house and you know see a movie in a way that they can't replicate in their living room, and that that's IMAX, that's Dolby, that's RPX, that's all these great premium formats, and. 
that's that's what Marvel movies are designed for. And I, I think we'll really probably see quite a few sellouts uh, for Black Widow this coming weekend and and hopefully the weeks ahead with with more movies. Uh, I think the Suicide Squad will, will play really well like that, too. But uh, yeah, this I mean, this really is shaping up to be a big weekend. It'll be in progress as everybody is listening to this episode and Black Widow is beginning its Thursday night previews. But uh, it's it's kind of one of those long awaited moments. This is one of the movies that was pretty close to opening, kind of like F9 and A Quiet Place Part 2 back before the shutdown last year. And certainly one that I know theaters are happy to have, despite the fact that it is shared with a uh, hybrid release. So speaking of F9, how did that do uh, last weekend uh, compared to its opening weekend? So Russ F9 in its sophomore frame here in North America came in at 24 million, leading the box office uh, from just about over 4,200 screens. That puts the domestic tally at 117 million after two weeks. Globally, uh, I believe we're about to hit the 500 million mark uh, worldwide for F9, which is a, a great milestone, obviously, for, for a Hollywood title as we emerge slowly from this pandemic. And to just recap last weekend's box office, it was Universal finishing off uh, on the on the three podium positions here. The Boss Baby sequel coming in on second place with 17.3 million, despite opening day and date on streaming platform Peacock, and The Forever Purge opening with 12.7 million. So good news uh, from the market as we get everything ready, Sean, for what we're expecting to be is it fair to say the biggest weekend up to this point? I mean, can you walk us through this, Sean? What is and what isn't at stake this weekend with the debut of Black Widow? So I do think we have to be cautious and careful in looking at what Black Widow does because this is still a, a Disney Marvel movie that is not exclusive to theaters. I think despite that, it's still at a, in a position where we can see the biggest weekend we've had yet on the on the domestic side of things uh in in regards to pandemic era box office it, it's 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 very clear that this is a movie that will probably have some people that still choose to watch it at home but a, a very significant number of people are going to go out and see this with an audience because that's what marvel movies have always been designed for especially you know we've seen the last couple of years these youtube videos of end game opening night audiences and the reactions to scenes in those movies. And that's kind of become like a, a cultural and, touchstone. And Marvel themselves sharing that video in their big right. phase four announcement. I mean, it's not something that, that they're not appreciating and selling too. Yeah. And I mean, that's just, that's perfect marketing. And that's that you're selling the experience, not just the movie. Uh, I, I think we'll very easily hit over a hundred million for the whole weekend for all movies. There's a chance. Uh, I don't want to commit too specifically to any numbers because this is still Aww. such an odd. <laughs> uh, it's Just give our, us a our, range. Can we do a range? <laughs> yeah. Our range, well, I'll, I'll say this. Our range as of Tuesday when we're recording this is eight, is between 80 to 110 million for opening weekend. So that's, that's that probably, above the opening weekend for uh, F9. Right. So that essentially, to me, that's, that's, that's the way of saying, you know what, worst case scenario, it looks like this will still be able to out-open F9 even with the, the PVOD uh, strategy in mind. It could go higher. I, I, I would say that is really going to come down to the walk-up sales because Marvel movies have a very strong pre-sale corridor, so it's not really surprising that it's very far ahead of F9 at the same point. 
but it is by it is ahead by such a margin that there's there's a point where momentum just takes over. And I I I think especially with the marketing push that they're giving this, and with the strong reviews so far, and the fact that this is the first Marvel movie in two years, I think that's going to translate into maybe bringing back some people who haven't come back to the movies yet. And we'll be going into a lot more detail on what to expect this weekend online, boxofficepro.com. You'll be able to find on Thursday, Sean's latest column on the weekend box office forecast with all of the data points that we have up to that point, just as Black Widow hits those Thursday previews. Sean, thanks so much for that insight. And uh, we'll be bringing this back to the podcast next week as we dissect everything that went uh, down for that opening weekend on Black Widow. And moving on to industry news, we have a curious bit of information that we just learned over the weekend uh, coming from another iconic cinema in Los Angeles. Russ, uh, what's going on over there? Well, we're talking about the Vista Theater here, which is on the east side of Hollywood, right where uh, Sunset Boulevard um, meets Hollywood Boulevard. And it's an iconic theater, indeed, that's been open since 1923. It's a first-run theater uh, that shows a wide range of movies, and it's it's actually the first-run theater where if you want to see someone uh, semi-famous or up-and-coming famous in L.A. waiting in line to get in to see The Purge on Friday night, uh, it's kind of the place to go. And uh, so the Vista Theater has been closed due to the pandemic and uh, its future fate has remained uncertain for the last few months. And now we know that it has been purchased by film director Quentin Tarantino. To recap, Quentin Tarantino has owned the New Beverly Cinema uh, over kind of adjacent to the uh, to Beverly Hills, but it's really more in kind of the Fairfax district of, uh, of central LA. Um, he's owned the New Beverly for quite a few years, and the New Beverly is indeed a repertory art house theater. Uh, it plays entirely movies on film, primarily 35 millimeter, primarily sourced from Quentin Tarantino's own collection of prints. Um, but the Vista, he says, uh, and this is a quote, will not be a revival house. He says, we'll show new movies that come out where they give us a film print. We'll show new stuff so that where they give us a film print is kind of a, an interesting part. Now, that being said, so the Vista has a long theater. It's uh, built on the same site, basically, that was the site of the infamous giant set for D.W. Griffith's uh, film Intolerance, which was uh, built in the late 19. 19- teens. Uh, the Vista opened in 1923 as a combo vaudeville uh, theater and movie house. Uh, it was a porn theater in the 70s. It was refurbed in the 80s. Uh, it was entirely restored in, the, in 1999, uh, after which it's become, you know, kind of a real, uh, you know, cinephile destination. Oh, yeah. it's, all, all, the, all the best cinemas used to be porn cinemas. All the best ones used to be porn theaters, but all the best ones were not featured in the movie True Romance, mm. uh, which opens oh, with Christian Slater's character meeting Patricia Arquette's character at the Vista Theater watching a triple feature of Sonny Chiba movies. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, of course, wrote but did not direct True Romance. Uh, but that kind of brings the whole thing full circle. Tarantino said it's not going to be like the New Beverly. The New Beverly has its own vibe. The Vista is like a crown jewel kind of thing. So it'll be like the best prints will show older films, but they will be older films that can hold a four-night engagement. So some mixture of new first run and repertory cinema. Uh, now over the last couple of years, the Vista has rented its screen out 
to organizations like Secret Movie Club, um, which did show a lot of rep cinema. They would do like midnight screenings and Saturday morning screenings at the Vista. Um, that organization actually opened its own brick and mortar theater, its own hardtop in the Arts District last year, just prior to COVID. And they've been, uh, as far as I understand, uh, programming there ever since, uh, ever since things reopened. So, uh, you know, there's been a tradition of doing some rep cinema at the Vista. So Tarantino will obviously be able to build on and, and continue that. And of course, uh, talking about Quentin Tarantino, his last film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, had its uh, premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, which is going on right now in southern France. Uh, guys, looking over the list of titles that are playing at this year's festival, what pops out at you as something that you're excited to see at the movies later this year? Paul Verhoeven, erotic thriller, nun drama. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's technically... And the podcast right there. Like, it's there called we Benedetta, go. but... <laughs> Untitled Paul Verhoeven. Erotic nun, thriller, nun Erotic drama. thriller, nun drama. Yes. <laughs> or Benedetta if you're being technical. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled for anything Verhoeven. I never know what that freaky little so-and-so is going to bring to the cinema screen, but I know I want to see it. <laughs> yes. Maybe there's wait. bugs. Maybe there's a robot with a gun in there. We don't know. It doesn't matter. There's going to be some sort of Jesus allegory, and we're all going to be into it after two mm -hmm. and a half Maybe hours. Maybe it's just uh, Isabelle Huppert with a knife. It doesn't matter. Like, it could be anything. It's a joy. Yeah. You can't wait. Uh, we also have uh, some new films from directors Koganada and uh, Hamaguchi Ryosuke. Uh, those two men did two films that I quite liked a few years back, uh, Columbus on, on the art house scene, and then a film called Asako 1 and 2, uh, which I caught at the Fantasia Film Festival up in Montreal. Um, kind of, I, I don't know if you'd call them up and coming at this point. They definitely both have some, some films under their belt, but you know, I, I really love film festivals and, and can in particular to get me some of that international goodness that I might not have heard about otherwise, because not all of these films get picked up for domestic distribution. So uh, I'm excited for those two. Hope I get a chance to see them. And that Hamaguchi title is the one that I'm really looking at, Rebecca. Um, I'm a big fan of his movie, uh, Happy Hour, which is a, a trilogy of films that was released in 2015 here in the US. I actually saw that during the pandemic. It was one of my pandemic long watches uh, that I started just deep diving into. Uh, the new title that Hamaguchi is taking to Cannes this year is called Drive My Car. It's an uh, adaptation of uh, Murakami uh, story. And I'm a huge fan of Murakami's writing as well. I'm really excited to see how this adaptation works out. The last Murakami adaptation to play at Cannes was actually Lee Chang Dong's Burning, which uh, for my money, I, I, I hope it's not hyperbolic to say, for me, it was the best movie of the last decade. I absolutely loved the last time we brought uh, a Murakami story to the big screen at Cannes. Uh, maybe a lot of, uh, maybe a high bar, a lot of expectations for this title to come in, but uh, I'm quite excited as, as you are for that one. Uh, I, we also, we got to highlight Annette, the Leo Carra movie, uh, the new movie from the director of Holy Motors, which is a musical featuring Adam Driver and uh, Marion Cotillard with music by Sparks, uh, who's the band, which is the subject of uh, the documentary film, uh, The Sparks Brothers by Edgar Wright, which just opened re recently. Uh, basically anything Carra does, I 
want to see immediately. And this is no different, especially when you put all of those factors together. Um, there's Red Rocket, the new Sean Baker movie, uh, filmmaker behind uh, Tangerine and Florida Project. Really interested to see what happens there. Uh, Titan, the new movie uh, by the director of Raw. And then uh, finally, for me, this is maybe a movie exclusively for me, but uh, Tilda Swinton is stars in Memoria as a woman who suffers from exploding head syndrome. Mm, uh, the Cronenberg connection. I, I knew you'd bring <laughs> that up. You had to bring the Cronenberg link somewhere. You know, perhaps we could just call the movie Exploding Head Syndrome. A lot more people will see it, but it's uh, this is evidently a real thing in which people hear, you know, loud, banging, exploding noises. Their heads don't actually explode. It's not really a Cronenberg movie, but uh, it's the new movie from Thai director uh, Apachat Pong uh, Rasakul. Sean, do you have any? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if there was more. I mean, really, the most well-known, I would say, at this point on the list to me is is Wes Anderson's French Dispatch, which I've been looking forward to for a long time. I, th- I know you guys have talked about it, too. It's really, to me, every year, I think every festival like this, is it's exciting to me because it's an opportunity to learn about all of these movies we don't really hear discussed on a day-to-day basis in the industry. And it's a good preview of, of what the end of the year usually is during that lead-up to the Oscars and... Uh, so it's kind of that discovery process to me more than just any one single movie that I think I'm looking forward to. Totally, Sean. I think the influence of this film festival is just massive when we look at the movies that get released in that second half of the year, right? As we approach the fall, winter months, as the Oscar campaigns start revving up, it's a great opportunity to to see things that really haven't been in our radar. And one of those companies that have played a big role in getting these films at the festival, distributing them in several different markets is MK2. And that leads us in to our interview segment with MK2 co-CEOs Nathaniel and Alicia Karmitz, who joined me for a conversation just as they were about to leave uh, for Cannes. It was a, a very interesting discussion. And to, to situate our listeners on the role that, that MK2 plays in French cinema culture, it's quite interesting. I think from a branding perspective, at least, let's start there. MK2 is a production company a distribution company and an exhibition circuit specialized around the culture of movie going. So to give you an example of equivalence here in the U.S. market, imagine the brand appeal of Alamo Drafthouse on the exhibition side. Uh, A distributor like A24 and uh, let's say a home entertainment player like the Criterion Collection, all wrapped up in one company. Uh, That's a long way of saying curation is a huge part of MK2's identity. And it's something they've really uh, grown through since being founded in the mid-1970s by Nathaniel's and Alicia's father, Marin, who himself is a notable producer uh, responsible for a number of great films. Uh, For example, just to name one, he was the lead producer behind uh, Krzysztof Kieslowski's uh, Three Colors trilogy uh, in the mid-90s. A great series of films, a great career. And that really runs uh, through the family tree in the Karmitz family. Their exhibition circuit, quite interesting. They have a number of locations in France. They actually have a higher screen count in Spain. So they have experience in knowing 
what different audiences in different markets uh, like. So without boring everyone too much with this introduction, let's just jump right in. Nathaniel, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us today right before you head out to Cannes. Let's start it right at the beginning to situate our listeners here in the United States that may not be familiar with MK2. Could you tell us a little bit of everything that you guys have been doing as a company really since the mid-1970s when the company was founded? Well, th thank you for having us. Um, MK2 is a, is a family business founded by our father uh, in 1974. We now run the company with my brother Nathan. Uh, we have three main departments at MK2. Uh, first one is uh, MK2, uh, MK2 Cinemas, uh, we're cinema exhibitors. Uh, we have uh, cinemas in, uh, in France and in Spain. Uh, it represents uh, 26 cinema rooms, uh, 100 screens, and approximately in between 9 to 10 million tickets per year. We have a second department called MK2 Films. We are an international distributor and co-producer. Uh, we also have a, a catalog of uh, about 800 movies going from Charlie Chaplin to Xavier Dolan to uh, uh, Christoph Kislowski to uh, Claude Chabrol or to Abbas Kiarostami. And regarding international distribution, we also represent in between 15 to 25 new movies each year. Most of them are being uh, shown for the first time in the biggest film festival. Uh, this year in Cannes, we have nine movies in competition. So this is really... Uh, what we do as an art house indie boutique. Uh, and our last uh, business unit is called MK2 Plus. It's a communication department uh, where we uh, mostly produce some uh, cinema events or, uh, or and also a department where we do some operation where we relate brands to cinema, either for our network or specifically for the brands when they want to connect with cinema audience or cinema talents. We are, we are trying to be uh, on, on these three fields. And uh, as part of the history of MK2, also just to give you a little bit of background, the company was founded in 1974. The first cinema was called 14 Juillet Bastille, opened on the 1st of May uh, at the Place de la Bastille. And we opened this first cinema with, uh, with a bookstore. And uh, it used to be a cinema where already at this time we had a lot of uh, screening with with uh, debates with a lot of uh, big political engagement uh, mm -hmm. in the cinema. So uh, this was uh, the first uh, way of the company to exist, and uh, and we definitely relate to our story. And we have to say that the company is still an indie company, uh, completely family owned. Uh, so which is also something that is very uh, rare uh, nowadays. And one of the things that strikes me uh, from MK2 in, in understanding the, the French film culture and obviously with your presence in, in Spain as well, is that the company in itself has been able to grow into, uh, I would say, a, a modern example of where I think a lot of companies in the cinema industry want to get to. Being a brand about film culture with, a, with I think, a recognized identity by audiences from a curatorial approach. It seems like you guys have a pretty good connection with your audiences in terms of the films that you put out and in how even how you build your cinemas and, and the environment around your cinemas. That's something very difficult to do. Uh, to give you an example, here in the U.S., very few brands, I think, have accomplished that. I think Alamo Drafthouse 
in its own way has done that, maybe A24 as a distributor, or even the Criterion Collection as a, as a home entertainment brand through through Janus Films. Is this something you were conscious of as, as the company was growing and as you guys became more involved in the family company, turning MK2 into a recognizable brand more than just a cinema company? Well, I think this is something that has been at the core of uh, MK2 from the beginning. Uh, as you know, our baseline is uh, another idea of cinema, and uh, we spend a lot of time on our brand management. Our first value uh, at MK2 is uh, curation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that we uh, we create a big trust in between the audience and the brand through the curation of movies. We look at cinema, and we think cinema is a way to confront yourself to otherness, and that is, this is something specifically nowadays that is very important. And the last value is transition. As a family business, we, this is something that is very important to us. And we're also creating tools to, meet, to be able to transmit these values to our audience. That's why we have a, a media department where we, we have journalists in-house at MK2. I think we're one of the only cinema brands in the world that hire uh, a complete uh, media house inside and at the central as a central piece of the company to make sure that we can uh, transmit uh, our ideas and our views on cinema. I, I think it's very interesting, especially as as we're saying that that the company really is is trying to come in to the idea of cinema that is something that is central to to people's lives, central to uh, the intellectual life, to the social life. Of course, a big part of that is one of the things that, that you were discussing a second ago, Alicia, on the eventizing of movie going. And I know uh, we're recording this just after, what was it, a four, a five-day event you held in the courtyard, the, the entrance of the Louvre in Paris, uh, the Louvre Museum, um, where this really was a way to eventize movie going. It was uh, Cinema Paradiso was, was the concept. Could you Tell us a little bit about that concept and some of the results you had in in launching this, uh, really, as the country is emerging from the pandemic. Well, you know, at MK2, we always considered that uh, cinema should be a lively place, uh, that cinema should be uh, at the central square of the village. Uh, That's why we created in 2013 uh, an event called Cinema Paradiso. And uh, now it's, uh, it's, uh, the event is happening uh, in uh, at Le Louvre, which is for us, Parisians, uh, really the, the central part of the city. Um, and we're mixing uh, food, music, cinema, to make, uh, to make the experience something very exceptional, something very different. Uh, and people are experiencing open-air cinema. It's quite gigantic because we have 25-meter screen, uh, 2,000 people uh, each night, uh, a concert of uh, you know, a really cool artists before the movies. And people are partying and making of the cinema a feast. And um, it's also a way to share our passion and uh, also a way for the people to experience it differently. And it creates another uh, relationship to the brand. And this is also related to uh, a brand we just, uh, we just launched during the pandemic uh, called Hotel Paradiso mm-hmm. uh, that just opened in March of 2020. And it's the first cinema hotel in the world. It's already difficult enough to run a cinema during a pandemic, you decided to make it even more difficult by making a hotel that is cinema themed coming out of a pandemic. How was that experience in opening this concept? What is sometimes difficult to understand uh, looking from the US is that France and French have a different relationship to the movies. 
Uh, first, it's not just entertainment, it's culture. It's, a, it's in the cultural field. Secondly, when we say we create, is that France has two characteristics. First is that we have a strong local market. So French movies are really strong, between 35 and 40% market share. And also, and especially at MK2, the, the market share of the other movies, when I say other, it's not from the US and not from France, is one of the highest in the world. It's between 10 and 15%. So this use of seeing movies from uh, all over the world is anchored in our uh, in our cultural life and relationship to, to cinema, and especially uh, at MK2 and in the relationship of our audience. So um, when we uh, when we try uh, try to rethink uh, one of our cinema, which uh, which is uh, neighborhood cinema, old 100 year neighborhood cinema uh, called MK2 Nation, with uh, some square meters to use, and we thought, what can be a next level of experiencing cinema. And that's where the idea seven years ago uh, of uh, Hotel Cinema came, uh, came up, uh, where we created this, uh, this building where you have a six-room uh, regular neighborhood cinema from a large theater of 230 seats to a very small one of 17 seats and 36 rooms with two uh, special suites where you have two real screening rooms in your room. So when I say this, you have six, six rooms downstairs and number seven and number eight in your room, in the two suites of the, of the cinema. And uh, in all the rooms, you have a more than desirable uh, home cinema uh, with a free screen, uh, three meter uh, base uh, screen and a laser projector with a especially curated programming uh, every week by our team, plus uh, an access to uh, 10 different uh, uh, SVOD platforms, uh, plus 2,000 DVDs, including the whole Criterion collection and the MK2 DVD collection, uh, um, a rooftop uh, with a cinema, outdoor cinema, uh, starting at 10.30 uh, in the evening. And so it was a way not to uh, theme an hotel with Troy uh, Chaplin welcoming you, but to make the movie as the center of the experience uh, in this hotel and the uh, experience of watching a movie uh, and the curation at the center of, uh, of, the, of the experience. And so it's an extension of the idea of cinema uh, in this hotel. And uh, we opened the uh, um, 1st of March. And to be honest, in, in the pandemic period, uh, it's an amazing success because we are uh, over 90% uh, uh, full and mostly with Persians. The, the idea didn't came from the pandemic. You know, it, mm -hmm. it took nearly six to seven years to develop this project. But it's true that at this time, we just mixed the two uh, businesses that were the most impacted by the pandemic. We mix them together and just create a new concept. And something I need we, make, we need to make very clear for the audience is we have 36 rooms uh, and, and two suites. And in these suites, uh, you can have access to the movies that are being released in the cinemas that is just downstairs. And this is clearly something that it's exclusive to this place and you can't experience anywhere else in the world. So the, the innovation is coming from here. But is it an innovation that is a disruption of the cinema industry or the hotel industry? I think it's more about the disruption of the hotel industry than the cinema. Uh, but, you know, we are a company and we've, we thought of ourselves as pioneers and we're trying to push the boundaries of uh, experience, of, of having fun, about 
you know, what new type of audience will expect from guys like us to have fun on a Saturday night. Well, let's talk about disruption as a whole, because I think that's a good transition into what this industry is going through. And I think your perspectives as both distributors and exhibitors, especially in a market like France that has, um, I think it's fair to say, some of the most restrictive uh, policies around theatrical windows and theatrical exclusivities, obviously a lot of passions there. Um, what is your reaction right now to the changes that we're seeing? Well, I'll start by just giving an example, and I let Nathan, you know, develop the idea. You know, we just uh, we just closed this event at uh, Louvre. For, uh, it, it happened for four nights. We open uh, with classical movies, so it opened with a screening of uh, 2001: Space Odyssey, and then on the next two days, we had pre premieres of movies brought by Amazon and Netflix. The Amazon movies was a premiere of uh, The Tomorrow War of Chris McKay. And the, Net the Netflix movie was a movie that should have been released to cinema in France. And then we, we closed the event by a screening of a Bertrand Tavernier movie. Uh, Bertrand Tavernier is a French filmmaker who died this year. Uh, and by the screening of Cinema Paradiso. So it's a concrete example about how we can exist with platforms. They are not going to disappear. Uh, and, uh, you know, trying to bring things together in a coherent way. First of all, um, for us, the platform uh, world is not in competition with theaters. It's in competition with screens at home or your mobile phone. It's in competition with traditional TV, with cable TV, with uh, Facebook, with uh, YouTube, but not uh, with, uh, with theaters. It's another way of consuming uh, movies, but in competition with the regular TV. Our, our job as cinema owners is to make people go out and live an experience with other people. It's uh, laugh and cry together, uh, like uh, Charlie Chaplin would say uh, for, uh, for the kid in uh, 120 years ago. Uh, and our industry has always been changing like this. Um, every 20 years, there's a, there's a disruption uh, in content and uh, in, the, um, in the cinema uh, rooms. Um, cinema has already uh, lived uh, black and white to color, silent movies to, uh, to sound, um, the apparition of multiplex, uh, now the premiumization, etc. So we have always evolved regarding also new technologies, uh, uh, VHS, DVD, cable TV, now platforms. But this two way of living and consuming movies has always been uh, growing uh, together. So yes, there is a disruption, uh, but we don't think it's an opposition. That being said, yes, theaters uh, have to reinvent themselves, reinvent uh, the uh, relationship that they have to their, to their audience, what is the uh, place of a cinema in a city, um, how you can have uh, your community uh, engaged uh, in, your, in your activities. So that's also maybe why in France we have, uh, we have this habit or at least less fear of, of the platforms. First, we have uh, regulations, but also we leave cinema not only as entertainment, but also as culture. <laughs> and uh, that being said, uh, it's not about just uh, throwing blockbuster movies every Friday. It's also by offering this uh, window to the world, on the world, 
uh, in our cinema and having different activities. It's also the sense of uh, uh, the newspaper we we have uh, named uh, Trois Couleurs. Uh, it's the mean of uh, the MK2 Institute uh, where we organize uh, like 700 talks uh, in our uh, in our theaters every year. It's about having premieres. It's about having an event and a good reason to go out of your of, of your home and living uh, an experience with your friends, with your family, with your kids as a lifestyle and not only about consuming. Uh, so I think this is a sense where, yes, we are living a big disruptions, but yes, we are very confident in the, in the future of cinema, but there are a huge um, target to be achieved in the, in the next few years about reinventing our, our job and our uh, places. There are different cinema concepts that seem to work in different countries. What I mean by that is the dine-in cinema trend is very popular here in the United States, where you go and there's restaurant service and there's programming around, let's say, alcohol drink specials. You can have an entire meal. Obviously, in France, that concept really hasn't taken off. We haven't seen this as something that, that has been very relevant in the French market. What do you guys think about this uh, different role in innovation and the changes of what the cinema space is like and what the cinema experience is turning into? To be honest, we don't like this idea of premiumization for two reasons. First thing is we think our job is about movies, not about just sitting and choosing a room. Uh, we're not restaurants with a screen. We're, uh, we're cinema distributors, ID distributors. So yes, we need to reinvent the way we are welcoming people and the, and the seats and the, the, the experience has to be great compared, compared to your home. But the idea that um, premiumization is a solution, we just really don't like the mm. idea. Uh, for historical reason, cinema and uh, movie going is the cheapest. And as for us, as to say, to stay is the cheapest way of getting out and going out. Uh, and it has to be a popular experience. Um, so we're more likely to prefer the idea of keeping price low with great experience, but not changing our model in, in another industry. We're not restaurant owners. We're uh, pushing people to love cinema, not just going out. So we think it's a short-term vision of the, of the, of the movie-going experience. Um, secondly, in France, very specifically, we have a cultural way of looking at food very different from the US. We cannot imagine in France to eat at any time. Lunch and dinner is a social experience in itself uh, where we cannot compare to the, to the US in this field. So we think each territory and each uh, country has its own way to evolve uh, uh, and each market has its way to evolve regarding this movie going. But the idea of a globalization linked to the idea of premiumization in the US is not the good way and not the unique way of, uh, of going. Uh, it's great in a way, but it's not the only way. And uh, many, of, uh, many of these new cinema are exploring new ideas. Alamo, for example, it's about food and beer, but it's also and mostly about programming and it starts about programming. And when, when we forgot that our business is about showing movies and programming, I think we missed the point. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, that'll wrap up this episode of the Box Office Podcast. And thanks again to the Karmitz Brothers for joining us this week. The Box Office Podcast is produced by recordeditpodcast.com and the Box Office Company. 
thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. 